Do you want to feel happier? Do you want to feel more radiant and more alive? Or to go beyond alive and truly feel like you are thriving? That's what I'm here for. Helping you find that best you that you know is in there. It is. And you can start accessing that you today. It's possible. If you're ready for a shortcut to just that, let's work together. Reach out and let's work one-on-one to transform you and your life into happy, into thriving. Reach out to me and book a quick call. It's in the show notes and let's get you there. Are you really committed and ready? Then let's do it. Personally, I'm the happiest I've ever been thanks to all the practices that I've made a part of my life. You can be too. It is here for you. I promise. You can also access my course, The Youthfulness Hack, which is all about feeling good and getting radiant and all the things I do concentrated in one spot. Go there today and use code AMY15 for 15% off right now, only for listeners of this show. And if you are truly ready to have accountability and live happy, book a call with me today. The world needs your best. You deserve your best. Hello, and welcome to the Amy Edwards Show. I'm your host, Amy Edwards, and we are here to uplevel our lives and become our next best version at absolutely any age. So thank you so much for turning up here because that's what we're doing through habits, mindset, and words from experts like today's guests. I am so excited about today's guest. So first off, thank you so much for being here. Everyone that's listening, thank yourself because you're doing something for yourself and stepping outside your comfort zone every time that we have these conversations and every time that we look for something and ask questions and get curious. So remember to do all the things, rate, review, subscribe, and of course, follow today's guest. So I'm welcoming Scott Carney. Scott is an investigative journalist, but to me, so much more. You are the author, Scott, of The Wedge, uh, What Doesn't Kill You, The Enlightenment Trap, and numerous articles all over the place. And to me, you are a trier of things. You are someone who jumps in. You have climbed Kilimanjaro with your shirt off with Wim Hof. You've done all ice. You've done the sauna, like the sauna, you know, in where it originated, the, I believe. The, 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 the Ur sauna, the perfect <laughs> sauna. <laughs> yes. And I mean, sensory deprivation, meditation, plant medicines, non-plant medicines, you know, with your part, with your wife and like all the things that I have sought and done. And I think when I read The Wedge, I just kept recommending it to people. I was reading some to Justin, my partner. I just was so into it. And as I was preparing to talk to you today, which thank you for taking the time. I'm so excited. Uh, I, I mulled over like why I liked it so much and why I liked the enlightenment trap. And I think that it's because you have a really, I guess it's your investigative nature. You just want to try things, but you approach it in a balanced way and a pragmatic way. And even in the wedge at the end, it's like you have little how to's and I'm like, (laughs) I'm so into that. Like, give me a list and tell me how to do it. And so I just really uh, like your approach. 
And as I was listening to the Enlightenment Trap 2 and even your podcast, which you have a new podcast out called Scott Carney Investigates, and there are short episodes, I would encourage everyone to go check it out. I guess I just wondered, it seems like, you know, you're just willing to step up and investigate and try things, but you seem almost on a quest too, and we all do. Sometimes I guess I wonder, what is the question? What are we trying to answer? What do you think it is? Oh, my God. First of all, amazing intro. Thank you so much. Uh, so lovely to, to, it's so lovely to talk to somebody who really engages with my work because that's what every author wants. More than money, more than fame. We just want to <laughs> have people that are like, oh, what were your ideas? And how did they all come together? And how did they resonate with you? And so I love that so much. Um, Thank you. And what is the question is... Um, so difficult because either there's many questions or there's almost no questions. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I, if I'm going to give you sort of the pithy answer, uh, it is what is it that makes us human is sort of a big fundamental thing. Like we are this bag of meat and nerves and blood and bone that is somehow conscious. What is up with that? Who are we really? And, um, and that question just spirals out in a million different directions. And I have investigated things from the very hard journalism perspective all the way out into sort of the more esoteric, um, uh, unanswerable questions. Um, you know, in the very beginning of my career, I was someone who specialized in looking at organ trafficking and not the, oh, I woke up in a bathtub full of ice stuff, which is not true, right? There's all these conspiracies. Total urban legend, great. Total urban legend. <laughs> Yeah. But actually, hospitals that harvest all of the kidneys out of refugee camps. I interviewed all the people who had the kidneys stolen. So that, like, that's what, like, the start of my career. Uh, and I also have written about climate change and war, and then the war correspondent. I've done all these sort of like different um, aspects and you know sort of journeys in my life. And and the three books that you and many people resonate most with are the three um, about consciousness and about um, who we are as people, who we are as bundles of nerves that are sensing the world, and what does that all mean? And it all started with this book, The Enlightenment Trap, which is actually my second book. Um, but I re-released it recently, and that's a whole other convoluted um, question. But like, it all started with this, with the, the death of a student of mine. So I was just finishing up a PhD program in anthropology, and uh, and I was taking a break. So I led the, and I was leading these students abroad throughout North India, going to all of the holy sites. And I lived in India for a long time. I speak Hindi, very involved with India. And uh, on at one point, we took the students to a 10-day silent meditation retreat in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition uh, where, you know, we were silent. We were meditating on nirvana, enlightenment, on bliss, all of these like awesome, good concepts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was this, you know, I was the leader of the group, but I was, you know, there was a nun teaching these classes and we're, we're totally silent. And on the last day of the retreat, my best, my brightest, my most driven student climbs up to the roof of the retreat center in Bodh Gaya, um, ties a scarf around her head and jumps to her death. Uh, and the and I'm suddenly tasked with talking to her family, figuring out what happened, why would she take her life? And the last words in her in her journal were, I am a bodhisattva, which is essentially, if you're not familiar with Tibetan Buddhist terminology, this is essentially, I am an enlightened being. 
I am an angel. I am, you know, something so much greater than myself. And she took her life because she thought she had arrived at this perfect state of bliss. And uh, this sent me down two tracks. On one on one hand, I'm dealing with her body. I'm dealing with the meat of her body. That uh, it's a hundred and some odd degrees outside. And what happens to me was happening to her. And uh, there were people fighting over her body parts in weird ways uh, that, you know, you can read the red market for about how that happened. And that set me down this path of trying to understand what happens when the person is separated from their body. And what is the, the journey that happens physically in death? Um, and so I, I wrote this whole bunch about organ trafficking that comes out of that experience. But the other question is, of course, why did she take her own life? What is it about meditation and this search for things that are unquestionably good, right? That spiritual progress, spiritual insight, spiritual inquiry is a good thing, but there's this dark side to it. And that it's one that we do not talk about. And so that, that book, The Enlightenment Trap, is my examination of things that like miscommunications, misunderstandings, the history of how Eastern spirituality become, comes West, but also how all spirituality is powerful and dangerous at the same time. And and I don't look at meditation as innately good. I look at that as powerful. And, and I think that many people have these romanticized ideas about what being a spiritual person is. Like you think you're just, if you're spiritual, if you pray to God, if you do these things, you are a good person, but it's so much more muddy than that. Uh, it doesn't, and it's not to say it's not worth it to go try these things and go out there and do it, but, but know that you're engaging in something which is not unquestionably good in all ways. So that was that book. And then, you know, and then obviously the wedge and what doesn't kill us are the flip side of that is that, there are some of these spiritual things that are truly astounding and make you look at your life in different ways. And in particular, when you a person interacts with their environment, um, the environment gives you signals that your nervous system uh, takes up, and then they offer you a choice for how you want to respond to that world. And you can change the world around you, change your body, change your actual physiology. You know, your change the way your body secretes hormones and and deals with immune uh, immune problems you can do that by simply changing your mindset and you don't need to go all woo woo on this you don't need to go get prana from heaven to make that work there's actual like physiological mechanisms and i think what one of the things that i hope resonates with you and i think it resonates with your audience about this is that there's also a spiritual component just to that material connection to everything around us yeah totally and one of the things you talk about in the wedge too that interested me is that i'm like I, I've tried really hard to, especially over the last five years, cultivate habits that serve me. And one of the things you say in the wedge is that it's not about a habit. It's about like getting out of that and like sort of disrupting, right? Disrupting our patterns and, and creating something and finding a new way of being. Yeah. But almost like it's almost like the wedge itself can become a habit. <laughs> you know, you can yeah. have a habit of of doing these new things, which I'm kind of wondering if mine has like evolved into itself or I don't know, actually. But anyway, I just thought it was really interesting from the perspective of habits of like, OK, can you at least build a habit of getting out of your comfort zone or yeah. using the wedge? Yeah. How do you do that all the time? Do you are you still doing like a lot of this stuff? Because I listened to your most recent podcast and you were talking about 
how things taper off over time, you know, right. like you get good at them. And I've noticed that myself. And now, you know, these things that were tools that really launched us can pull, you know, can just not the law of diminishing returns, I believe he called it, right? Yeah. 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 The law of diminishing returns is simple and it, and it really applies to everything any new skill you get, right? At first you improve rapidly. Like if you're, if you don't know how to dance and you take a hip hop dance class, you're going to get a lot better at hip hop dance in that first hour than you did in the hour before that. And, and also in the hours after that, you're going to taper off. You're not going to be the best hip hop dancer in the world, right? It's just like the general law of you have to put in more work to get increasingly better. That's the law of diminishing returns. What I suggest in that most recent podcast is that we can flip the idea of the law of diminishing returns on its head by calling it the law of speedy gains. Is that, you know, I don't need- Oh, I get it. Yeah, I don't need to be the best hip hop dancer in the world, right? I don't need to be the best breath worker, you know, psychedelic, shamanistic, whatever. I don't need to do that. I can, I can dabble and there's no problem with not being the best. In fact, I think Americans in particular are so entranced with um, the super athletes, the super soldiers, the the, pe- the people at the very top of whatever it is that they're the top of, you know, the you know, not only are you an author, you're a New York Times international bestselling author. You're not good enough until you're Stephen King, right? Like it's it's this. Um, we want the pinnacle, but in truth, happiness doesn't come from being on the pinnacle. It happens from enjoying the things around you, and you certainly do not have to be the best at that. Like if if I look at someone running the Boston Marathon, I mean, it's great whoever wins that particular marathon, but like, I'm impressed with everyone who ran it, like every single person who did it. It's awesome. And I think when I start talking about the law of speedy gains, it's try a lot of stuff, get good at stuff, and then try to maintain it. And I don't think I really pushed that so far in the, um, in that particular podcast, but the idea is that, you know, you get to a gain and you play with it and you maintain it, but you, you just let go of the idea of being the best. And like that act of letting go of being the best just allows you to be like, cool, now I'm going to try something else. Now I'm going to be like, I'm going to do a puzzle. I haven't done a puzzle in a while. And then I'm going to go, you know, uh, go on a long bike ride. And now I'm going to, you know, whatever. You start picking things and choosing. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, being a dilettante is amazing. And we should all be dilettantes sometimes. (laughs) Thank God, because I am. (laughs) Yeah, but... What you hit on in there, too, to me, is like this paradox of like we're seeking this in game, this enlightenment or, you know, achievement, whatever it is. But the actual thing is the letting go and just being in it, you know, the 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 seekers that go off to four lands or whatever. But really, just can we do it right here? And like That kind of struck me too, listening to Enlightenment Trap and just thinking about we call our daily life mundane, but maybe that's the uncomfortable space that we need to explore sometimes because that's where it can actually happen if we're willing to if we're willing to embrace that ordinariness that we yeah. want to call it. You know, it, it was funny. I was talking to somebody on a related note just a few days ago where. Um, Enlightenment Trap deals with some people who meditated for three years on a mountainside in Arizona. Like that's mm-hmm. one of the, the the aspects of the Enlightenment. And it doesn't end well for these people who spent three years in Arizona because that's an extreme thing to do, right? Like we can all right. say like, you know, whatever you're doing, like that's intense. 
The other thing I want to point out, though, is that all of us are extreme in various ways. Like, you know, one of the things that was great about what they're doing is they're trying to question the 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 understandings of how, what it means to live in a good life, right? To, to what it means to be a good person. And they're trying in a, in a way that I do not necessarily embrace, but they're trying something different. I do appreciate that aspect of what they're doing. I just think they went a little too intense. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, the ordinary life package that you get as a middle-class American is you, you grow up, you get you do good in school, you, you know, you, 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 you get to college, you, you find your partner, you get a job at a corporation, you work 40 years at a desk, and you fully fund your retirement plan. And think of how intense that is. That is an intense meditative practice. That is a thing that is that you know no higher generation was thinking about. No paleolithic caveman was like, well, I mean, if they did write about their big yes, this man said sat in front of a box and he tapped keys for 40 years and then he died happily in his bed like that that is like just as equally insane and absurd it's just that we don't think of it as absurd right and and i and i i'm enjoying sort of playing with this reality that we live in and realize that there are no answers uh but but to think that that person and that sort of like cultural life plan which I mean, probably not too many people follow it exactly, but I'm sure there are some people who do, um, is as bananas as anything else. And I think that both the meditative cave person and that person in that stuck in that office could have tried, I don't know, long distance swimming a little bit. Like they could have tried, (laughs) um, I don't know, like jogging or rolling around down the hill with a sled. Like they could have done so many other things and adding those other practices to their life are would be meaningful. And I think that you live more the more that you're able to do. Yeah. And it's about this being aliveness, right? Like we're here having this experience. So just go ahead and do it kind of like go yeah. be alive, whatever that means to you. Yeah, right? You're going to die anyway. We all know. And I, I write this in the wedge. That's right. One of my favorite lines, like if life were a song, we know that it ends in a minor key. Right. Like, yeah. like, they know whatever what the melody is, like, that, 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 or, you know, whatever. We know at the end it's like, bom, 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 and it's like, so good. Uh, you know, death is, you know, I, I predict that death will not be fun. Um, maybe, you know, depending on your tradition, you could say it would be, but I think that in general it's not. And I, and I, and I think that, that if we are able to live our lives knowing that the game is lost, we're not going to be immortal. We're not going to uh, achieve some sort of transcendent transcendent greatness that no other of the billions of people on earth have achieved because we are not special then once you embrace that that ordinariness it frees you to do whatever you want in your life and let go of things and let go of assumptions like hey i can be a little weird right or i can be totally ordinary and accept the ordinariness but like like it is freedom and i think that that embracing that end state is uh, a deep meditative practice for living your whole life over the long term and in the immediate moment right now. Uh, and this is where it plugs into that question of the wedge. Um, you know, I talk a lot about ice bathing. I'm a, I'm a famous bather, right? I hang out yeah. in ice water a lot. And the message that ice tells your nervous system, um, your nervous system doesn't speak in English, but I'm going to speak in English to you. That okay. the, the language is death. Okay, ice water is death because your body only has fight or flight and rest and digest. 
And fight or flight is like literally trying to get away from death because you're fighting or you're fleeing the thing that will kill you. So that message that's coming in through your nervous system is, is if you're able to say, hey, I'm sitting in the sensation of death and I can relax in it because I can accept that, hey, death will come, but also like, it's not so bad. It's just sensation. I've just like fundamentally changed the way I, I uh, um, interact with the world at large. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing bigger than the stories that we hear about someone who's facing death and then they change their entire life. And they do, like that is the one thing that comes up repeatedly that people, you know, start living their desires, right. living everything that they want to do. How's that how's that change you on a day to day basis then like the cold that you do all the time? Well, I think uh, the cold certainly has helped anxiety, autoimmune stuff. Um, Yeah, the cold is very important for my life. It's it's a great also social activity because it's a little hard thing that you can do with people. And and you know that in that ice water, you know exactly what they're feeling because it's what you feel as well. Um, mm-hmm. I, I am of the belief that we all have basically the same nervous system and sensations feel similarly between people. You can't prove that on a philosophical level, but I believe it. Um, yeah. And and that I love seeing people in that ice bath, like relaxing and being like, oh, this is fun. And and it, it, there's a community around doing these sorts of hard things that I think is fantastic. Um, yeah. So, but I also think that in general, at a larger level, I embrace failure all the time. I, I know that some of my books do really well. Some of my books totally flop. Like some of the things I do, actually probably most of the things I do don't go anywhere. And <laughs> I and I, I just feel like the process is what is fun. It's not necessarily the outcome, although I do need some outcomes that enough outcomes that do work out. And I have fortunately mm-hmm. had enough of them. But yeah, I think early in my career, I faced death quite frequently. Like I've almost been killed on multiple occasions. Uh, and and I've seen people very close to me die, um, younger people die. And it has, and that, you know, it's not good that I necessarily went through the experiences, but the lessons that come out of it have have made me very grateful for the life that I have. And I know that you know, just this last summer, I almost died. Uh, I almost drowned in a freak rafting accident. And wow, uh, I was held underwater for about a minute. Oh my uh, god! In a whirlpool, and uh, I relaxed in the ento- entire time. And like, I think me being able to relax in it actually is probably what saved my life because I was pretty clear-headed despite being battered by water for a long time and sort of stuck against a rock. And I came out of that not terrified about losing my own life but like you know my wife who was right down the river from me saw this all happen i was so much more concerned for her than i was for me and i think um i don't want to die because i I know i'm in a network of relationships but my own life in a way i feel like i have to live it the best i can at every moment and if i die in those moments it's not the biggest deal uh and i think that attitude is very useful for succeeding in things and being able to take risks that make me grow as a human. Yeah, for sure. And then you mentioned like failure, some of this stuff. Do you even call it failure to yourself or do you just call it like experience or, I mean. Yeah, I'll call it failure. I mean, I think it's fine to call it <laughs> failure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have a book that came out this last year called The Vortex, which is about 
um, Climate Change and War. And I think it was a great book, but it totally failed. Like it didn't sell millions of copies. I'm not, I'm not on the top of the New York Times bestseller list again. It's just, it's a book that did its thing and, and failed. And I can look at it and say, okay, and I can move on. Um, and if it's some later, someone picks it up and if I win a Pulitzer, I could still win a Pulitzer. I think I have a few weeks left to possibly win a Pulitzer, but I want. Um, you, you, know, might. you never know. <laughs> might. Um, things could change, but but I think it's okay to say, look, something did fail. And it was a, a direction that even if you put effort into and you enjoyed the process, it didn't work out. That's no big deal at all. Um, I, I don't consider myself a failure for having foot. Right. You're not like attaching. You say something was a failure, not like I, w- I failed, you know, like right. you. Right. It's more like that thing I did, I put it out there creatively in the world. And so there, right. there it is. There it is. So, uh, yeah. So what you mentioned what you're working on right now, and that seems to go with everything else that we're talking about. So can you tell me a little bit about what that, what that is, what's going on? God, there's so much. I actually don't know oh. what you're talking about. I, like, I have a book on napping. <laughs> I have a YouTube series podcast. Like, well, I think that I think that your men's health article that you mentioned at God, the beginning. Yeah. So that, but I am interested in your book on napping too. Like, what is that? I mean, like, I'm a sleep freak, and uh, I believe sleep is like the key to life. And I mean, we have to sleep. So, what is what is your book on napping? Um, I don't want to talk about it yet. Because okay, I okay. really, I really want to talk about it, but I can't because okay. um, the cool stuff is yet to come. So you have to have me back on. We'll talk all about napping. I will. Crazy, awesome things to talk about with napping. Um, awesome. Other than that, I just you guys should nap. Napping is good for you. Just go, just go do it. It's not a failure. It's great because that's good enough yep. for about napping. I love it. Um, okay, good. But, I just read a Huberman just posted something about it the other day and just about like a short burst of a nap and I tried it and it totally worked and uh, so anyway I'm a I'm a fan of the nap love it yeah I, I have like a yoga yeah. nidra um, uh, video on YouTube if people want to listen to it, where I guide people through a 30 minute nap um, which it might be fun a guided nap a guide I will guide you personally through a nap uh, and you'll have I've it really that. I know. <laughs> cool cool it's so cool. Basically, it's like, you know, it's just me talking. It's just an audio track. And then you listen to it as you're falling asleep, but you remain conscious because I've been talking to you and there's sort of instructions, hypnotic-like instructions that go on. Don't worry. Don't ask for your bank account number or anything like that. Um, <laughs> but like there's these instructions that happen and then you become both asleep and aware at the same time. It's a really cool state to be in. Um, and it's a, sort of like another chapter of the wedge, you could say. Like it's another environmental stimulus that I'm giving you uh, and you can sort of like guide your way through it. Um, it's cool. Awesome. And let's talk about this stuff later. Uh, and okay. we'll talk about why we can be next time, you know, in the fall. I'll come back on. I would love, um, that would be great. Yes. Yes, please. The, the, but the, yeah, what's going on right now is so I have this New York times bestseller, right? It's called what doesn't kill us. Most people know me because of this book. And mm-hmm. essentially after working on charlatan gurus for a while that's sort of one of the things that comes up over and over again in the enlightenment trap these spiritual leaders who do not necessarily have your best interests at heart uh i'm a i'm a cult following freak like i love stories about that and i you know i listened to your podcast like i said and you mentioned that the other day about cult leaders and why we like that and what we're searching so anyway 
Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing about cult leaders, that's oftentimes it. there are good things about cults. Like, mm -hmm. and that's what we don't like to say. We're like, cult, that means Jonestown. Everyone's going to commit suicide by drinking orange Kool-Aid. Like that's where, where they go or Mant or Manson and whatever. And the thing is what we, what we ignore often about cults is that they give something beneficial to the person who enters it, especially at first. I mean, it can go crazy down, down the road. Uh, but at first, usually like a technique they teach or the community or something makes answers a question that somebody had in a way that the other things in the world didn't. And sometimes like one of the, the person I write about in what in the enlightenment trap, I'd say like 90% of the Buddhist teachings that he teaches are great. And that 10% of them are insane <laughs> and dangerous. Um, and that 10% can be damning, but the other 90%, you can't just say, you know, um, there's no one who's a hundred percent wrong all the time, right? Like nobody in history has been always wrong with everything they said. I don't care if you think about the worst human, you can say Hitler, right? Right. I'm sure he said some stuff that was right. In general, I don't think you should approve of him, but like you, but, but once you say that someone is always wrong, good or always evil, you run the problem of being dogmatic yourself and you react yeah. to something. We all do this on social media, a politician you don't agree with tweet something you're like well i can't agree with them on everything so then you just it, it embrace an insane position because you you, you right. don't can't acknowledge the rightness in in other people y'all i have started using higher dose products and i am such a fan you know i don't put anything on this podcast that i am not 100 completely behind and I have a special discount code for you for all Higher Dose products. I'm so excited. If you don't know, Higher Dose is a wellness company. They have wellness tech products, they have tools, they have supplements, and they have body care. They have so many things that are hot right now too that are really biohacking and up-leveling our lives at home, which is really cool. They have an infrared sauna blanket. They have an infrared PEMF mat that I'm so excited to be sharing about soon. One of my favorites though is the red light face mask. It stimulates collagen, it activates glowing skin, reduces fine lines, regenerates cells, and it's soft. It's not like one of the hard plastic ones. So you can kind of move it around on your body, which I've been doing, and I am seeing amazing results. I am absolutely addicted to it. I use it every single night, and I'm using it in conjunction with one of their other products, the Glow Serum. And I'm very picky about what I put on my skin, and I am loving the Glow Serum. It's specially formulated to plump and hydrate and stimulate radiant skin, which that's the goal. They have a ton of other products too, magnesium ingestibles, magnesium body care, which has a healing oil and a serotonin soap that you can use in your bath, which I've been using too. It boosts your mood, enhances your skin and deepens your detox, gets you calmed down. Anyway, I'm a fan. So I'm so excited to offer you 15% off using my code MAGIC15. Go to the show notes. You can click through on the link right there. Or if you go to Higher Dose, just enter the code MAGIC15 and you'll get 15% off. Higher Dose has been featured in Goop, Glamour, Elle, Vogue, Bizarre, Allure, basically you name it. And there's a reason why. So go check it out. It's at higherdose.com and enter my code MAGIC15 for 15% off. All right. So... 
I know that was a tangent. I was talking. About- <laughs> I liked it though. You're right. We're human. Things are, you know, there's a lot of gray area. So it's all gray area. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I have this ability. I don't know if the ability, it's a, it's a tendency maybe to hold two contradictory ideas in my hands at the same time. I can see something for being good and evil in the same moment and appreciate them for both. And I don't think, I think that, that you, you do that so well in your writing. And that's one of the things I like a lot. Like you're able to like have a really balanced view, like I was saying, you know? Yes. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, and, and so with Wim Hof, I was the first person ever to write about him. It was an article in Playboy in 2013, I believe. Maybe, maybe it came out in 2014. I don't remember. One or the other. And it was basically the first real mainstream article about him. And I went in there thinking was a charlatan. Turns out I could do the method and my life changed overnight. And I became a big ice bathy guy. And I wrote a New York Times bestseller and he changed my mind. The method changed my mind. And I ended up helping launch his career into international stardom as it is today. Like right now, Wim Hof is hugely important. And it wasn't all me, obviously, like you know, but my article sort of like got the Vice interview, which got the Rogan interview, which got the yeah. which got the blah blah blah. And then, so I was like there that first match in a whole bunch of matches that, that came up afterwards. But I think what I have noticed over the ten years of working with Wim and doing the method is that I stand by everything I wrote in in What Doesn't Kill Us in terms of the effects and the science um, that we knew to the to that date, but. I think now what the world has forgotten is that Wim Hof is a prophet and a madman. Prophet, yes, we already talked about the good stuff, but the madman, he is crazy and he's been crazy since the beginning. Um, and people follow him like he's an infallible guru, um, that he that that what he says is has to be right because he goes right about one thing, therefore he must be right about everything. And he's leading people to do dangerous practices that that I believe are getting people killed, uh, and there's evidence of this at all. That, depending when this comes out, is already out there or will be out there soon, depending when this launches. And I'm, I've sort of come to the point where, where I think we need to leave Wim Hof behind, I, because fame is a problem. When you get so famous, you start believing your own stuff, and everyone there's this echo chamber around you, and you get put on a pedestal, and then everything you say you think is right and it's not always right because we're people and i think that the, that in, in in to some degree i have bear responsibility for this because i created a very powerful narrative around Wim Hof, right he was the crazy guy who was actually right about something and and i put my journalistic credibility on the line so basically embracing hoff but i don't think that enough has come out to explain what the madness really is people ignore it and or they don't report it you know things such as he gave himself a near fatal enema where he put a fountain spigot up his butt and all of his intestines were eviscerated and he almost died in the hands of his um, son because he hadn't seen his this is going to sound really convoluted but he hadn't seen his son in 10 years because he abandoned his children for 10 years to live in a squat house in amsterdam like these are like making him one of the worst parents and in history right wow and yeah. and and these and like and the the organization is is very financially motivated and it's very like it's run by his son who does not 
a different son who doesn't practice the method and is is basically just says he does it for the money. If you listen to his quotes, you know, you could, wow. I have videos out there and uh, that sort of like break that down a little bit more. But like the the message of doing ice water and inter- interacting with your nervous system and that sort of thing, that's real. But we have created a deity out of a man who is deeply flawed and how he's a rock star. He's going and teaching dangerous breathwork patterns in front of people that that make their conditions worse. And he just sort of like doesn't want to take a look at the negative side anymore. He cannot embrace it. And I think that we have to get to it. We are at a point now where we have to leap Wim Hof behind and that whole organization behind and say, we'll take the good. But, you know, unless something changes very radically, and I've been working behind the scenes for 10 years trying to change things, um, but that hasn't worked. So that's why I'm pretty public right now about my criticism. So it's weird. I, I feel like I'm at the beginning and the end of the of the Wim Hof method. What were you doing for 10 years behind the scenes? Like Talking when you say that. Him. So like really, you know, yeah, yeah. So I we chat a fair amount on WhatsApp and things like that. Uh-huh. And so one of the here's one of the dangerous things. And I think people should just hear this here so that they know what it is, is the Wim Hof method, Wim Hof is known for swimming under the ice getting a Guinness Book world record for swimming underwater. His method is hyperventilating, exhaling and holding your breath. Um, and so you, so you can hold your breath for a really long period of time. And it's also bathing in ice water, like sitting in ice water and right. and controlling your response to ice water. All that's great. But Wim Hof continually, continue, and, and even to at least till January, which is the last video evidence, teaches people to hyperventilate in ice water, which is freaking insanely dangerous um, because the because Wim doesn't really understand the physiology very well. He'll still tell you that you can increase your blood oxygen to above 100% and say these things that are just not, you don't go above 100%, 100%. There is that, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Um, what's actually happening is you're blowing off CO2 when you hyperventilate and your body detects the gas reflex, so your urge to breathe happens because your CO2 levels rise in your lungs, okay? So mm-hmm. when you hyperventilate, you artificially lowered your CO2, which is why um, uh, you could hold your breath longer because that CO2 buildup just takes longer to get to ordinary levels. And once it gets to ordinary mm-hmm. levels, then it has to get built up the gas reflex. That's the physiology here. Now, okay. here's the dangerous part. If you take a full, do hyperventilate, so there's like no CO2 in your, in your body, and then you full lung inhale, uh, you can get to a point where you do not sense the fact that you will pass out. You don't have those. There's no warning. There's no like like that. Your things go black or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't happen. You just pass out. So when you do this in water on land, okay, fine. Maybe you hit your head. Maybe you passed out in your bed, and then you just reset and you start breathing again. You're fine. In water, it is deadly. There is no question if you pass out in water, you you fall asleep, you, you, you pass out, your, your body resets, you take a breath in, water's in your lungs and you're done. And eleven, there are 11 news stories that I've collected over the last, you know, it's not hard. You just Google around, Wim Hof drowning, right? You collect this okay. stuff and there's 10 of these stories of people who drown. I've, I've talked to family members of these people and, you know, they're doing the Wim Hof method in the water and, and, it, and Wim still teaches this. Um, technique, even though there's warnings on his website, and there are warnings on his website saying never hyperventilate in water. But sometimes 
like in his um one of his fundamentals course so he paid so for uh, like 99 dollars, you get a 10-week course at wim hof on week eight he takes a guy into some water and he says here's what you do you hyperventilate put your face in the water and you can hold it for however long you want and then wow. so he does this and it's all on video and then in a in the the sidebar next to the video on the right hand side of the video there's a warning saying what wim hof is doing is not teaching someone to hyperventilate in water and it's like yes he is we just we're seeing it happen and it's like sort of this you know like legalese trying to cover your ass sort of thing don't try this at home yeah that's just one element of this madness he doesn't even though I've talked to him about this on numerous occasions, I've been like, Wim, you can't do this. And, and he, 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 we were on stage together in 2018. We did the same thing. Um, and I was like, Wim, this is dangerous. He's like, no, 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 we have warnings. It's like, yeah, but you taught it. So that's like a minor side of this thing. But I would say, even if you fix that, you don't fix the fame problem with Wim, right? You don't fix the fact that everyone... Um, gives him accolades and says, you're so wonderful, Wim. And you have photos of everyone in a circle touching Wim. And they're like, oh my God, they're they're putting him up on high. And 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 when you elevate someone to an impossible position, you're going to get results that are dangerous and deserve that. And I think that, that with Wim, although I think he is a wonderful and amazing and talented person who packaged this for the world in a really cool way that was very captivating i think we need to leave the guru behind you know there's that old saying in buddhism you know what do you do when you meet the buddha on the path to enlightenment well you kill the buddha that's what you're supposed to do that's the that's the proverb you you they, these these people become obstacles because you totemize them because they, they they become bigger than what they're able to offer and you know in, in the last chapter of what doesn't kill us we're climbing up mount kilimanjaro with 20 people in a world in a record time and we're all shirtless and then when uh in a, on 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 dry land this doesn't matter right like normal life he's like okay we're gonna we're in the final stretch we've been hiking for 20 hours and there's like a eight hour stretch left and he's like okay we're gonna go and like and we're just trying to eat our lunch like we're trying to eat some food so we can power ourselves up this last bit he's like no you can't do it we have to meet the record and he runs off up the mountain alone and he's and all the guard all the guides are like you can't do this it's so dangerous and like because i'm writing a book i'm like Fuck it, i guess i have to go i was like <laughs> i guess gee really and i found them all angry um following it. and we do make it up the mountain but it was like a needless risk and you know you he started off the whole trip with the saying which is very frequently repeated uh online it's like there is no ego we go and then of course he sprints away and that's whim. That's whim. Like he is so solipsistically inward looking that even though he has great language and when, when you sometimes when you talk with him, you're like, oh my God, he's so loving and he's so omniscient and he sees some things in the world in fundamentally different ways. And he's such a good person. That is a part of him. That's there. That's one of the hands. And the other hand is like, this guy's crazy. He's a madman. So he's a, he can be a madman and a prophet at the same time. But you need to know damn well who you're following when you follow him up a mountain or into a nice bath or wherever, whatever it is that you do. It's interesting that you use the word crazy and madman. Like you're legit using those words. I kind of like, I can get a little, uh, I try not to use them in describing someone because what do, 
sometimes I'm like, what do I know? <laughs> but I think, can you like clarify your context for those? Like, is it is it the lack of responsibility in what you're leading people to do that qualifies yeah. that term? So I would I would say um, yes, the lack of responsibility, the the, the uh, uh, a a solipsistic, which means like sort of like overwhelmingly inward looking. Um, thank you for uh, thank you. I know that word, but I yeah. didn't know that word. Yeah. So thanks. <laughs> right. So so just like so self-absorbed. And I would say uh, definitely mood swings, like like really like I mean, I can't yeah. give a diagnosis. Right. But like his highs are high and his lows are low. His he is, you know, when we put him on video, we show the highs, we show the good. Right. But those have mm-hmm. counterbalance. We swing from one pole to another and his downs are down. I have seen Wim angry. Right. Wim is, a, um, you know, comes from a family of alcoholics, has a background in alcoholism. If you just look at him, you can look at his nose and say, that looks like an alcoholic's nose. Um, again, I'm not diagnosing. I'm not a doctor, but mm, this is my feelings from looking at this stuff. And and. And. These are the contrasts in the man, right? He's a man who who's able to, to who showed something cool in the world, and I love that. And he's a man who makes really, really, really poor decisions because I don't think he sees the same type of reality that we do. Uh, I, I don't. I think that he's so focused on some goal that's actually it's a shifting goal. It's sort of constantly changing. He wants to like save the world. He wants to win the world over with love. Um, he also, from what I understand, he's anti the war in Ukraine. He hates Doc Fauci. He sort of gets involved with this sort of the QAnon stuff sometimes. He's like, he's pushed into like extreme stances a lot and pulled and voluntarily goes to these extreme stances because, you know, the way his self-narrative is, is I had this idea and I went uh, that cold and breath work could change my immune system. And science says it wasn't possible. And then he proved in a lab that he could do this stuff. And that was great. That was brilliant. That was awesome. But now he thinks that with everything and everything that comes into his head. And honestly, many people have this problem too. Like many people think that they're smarter than the world, right? But this stuff comes into the head, his head. And then he goes in this other direction um, where he pushes more and more fringy beliefs, more and more dangerous ideologies, uh, less and less grounded. And he's not going to be right every time. Mm-hmm. And 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 no one is. I'm not right, but I try at least try to like pull myself back when I go in. Yeah. And 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 he doesn't. He's he's full in, right? And if you got the 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 title of his of one of his books is called Becoming the Iceman. It says pushing past perceived limits. That's the subtitle of the book. Well, yeah, you, there are some limits you can push past because you perceive them as 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 you know too conservatively. But if you keep on pushing past your perceived limits, you will hit a limit. That is like the definition of that activity. And that is not the right way to think. And he is pushing that ideology in various ways, in podcasts, on TV shows, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And and I think that it's that mix of benefit that and 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 really sort of eye-opening cool stuff that he's done that 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 suddenly makes you a little bit gullible to the other stuff that he's pushing. Mm-hmm. That's what's dangerous. Yeah, I was just thinking the word trust. So when you said gullible, you know, like we we lean into that trust. And it's like an interesting irony, too, of this, I'm not coming from ego, 
But yet, and even in Enlightenment Trap, you you know, I don't know if you talk about this exactly, but it struck me about this self-importance, like, I'm here to save everything. You know, it's like, well, which one is it? You know? Uh, and I mean, that, yeah, please. No, you nailed it. That's it. That is it. It's like, it's, you know, how do, how does, I, I think in the, in the Enlightenment Trap, the line I used, how does one um, be a Buddha and still be in the world, right? How do you? How are you in the world but not of it? And it's not possible. You have to remain an actor if you're going to be in the world. You have to do the things that actors do, but you can't be the Buddha and not be in the world at the same time. It is a fundamental tension that all of these people have. And I, and I even in the Enlightenment drop, I also talk about how the Buddha himself in the Pali canons. So the Pali canons, the first written stuff about the Buddha. Um, Pali is a language that's dead. It's now only archived on palm frond. Um, In the Pali canon, uh, the very first lesson the Buddha ever taught got a bunch of people killed. And it's in the very, it's in the ordination texts of, of Buddhist monks to remind people that this type of meditation and the very first meditation that the Buddha taught was not breathing, right? The very first meditation was go into graveyards and watch corpses decay. Yeah, it's not right. a very well-known story, right? But it, it's it's called Migalandika, and you can go look it up, Google M-I-G-A-L-A-N-D-I-K-A. Um, what it is, is that he, the Buddha, had like a little ashram, and he said, okay, guys, you know, I'm going to go off and meditate in a cave for a few years, for some uh, six months, I think, and I want you guys to go, you know, progress on your way to enlightenment, and the way you do it is you let go of your... Um, your attachment to life by meditating in graveyards. And so you watch these corpses decay. And it's a place called a charnel ground, which we don't really have now, but it's like open air graveyards that work for paupers, prostitutes in, in ancient India. And so the bodies uh, are just laying around. The bodies are just yeah. laying. Yeah. Okay. Decaying. And, and so the monks would all go and they'd go to the charnel ground and they'd sit and they'd go watch the bodies decay. And then all the monks start committing suicide because they're like, oh my God, they were overcome. So, so says the, so this is the text that they said they're overcome with grief and they, and they start taking their own lives. And then um, when some of the monks can't take their own lives, so they just can't bring themselves to do it. So they go hire this monk called Migalandika to go murder them. And Migalandika goes and murders a bunch of monks. And like, I think hundreds of monks. Buddha comes back six months later. He's like, oh my God, my, uh, my monasteries are all dead. And, and there's a few monks still left for some reason. And uh, he goes to them. He says, what happens? Like, well, Megalandika killed everyone. So, so Buddha kicks out Megalandika and then says, okay, guys, so sorry, I messed up. From now on, instead of meditating in, uh, on deaths in, in graveyards, we're going to meditate on our breath instead. And that's how we get breathing meditation. Like That is the process because the Buddha made a pedagogical error. And I love this story so much because it shows that even the Buddha was not in shallow. And, and I think that's really, really important because we, because Buddha is, you know, people worship him as a deity and he made mistakes and we need to be able to say that anyone, the Buddha can make mistakes, anyone. Because we're human. We're human. Like, we're human. Like, we're human. Like, it's still a human form. So, I mean, like, yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. So that seems like the goal here, right? Like, take everything with a bit of a critical eye 
right? Even if you're doing the breathing techniques and, and even that, can we recognize humanity? Because it, like I found it interesting too that you mentioned you were getting a PhD, PhD, right? In anthropology? Yes. And like even your beginning stories about organ trafficking, you are studying like human nature. And yes. it's like this awareness of the like fallibility, I suppose, mm -hmm. or of of us as humans. Like it's just our human nature. So can we remember that, right? Stepping yeah. into that awareness. Yeah. And can we acknowledge like, you know, so I met a lot of organ traffickers. I'm probably one of the only people, you know, can honestly say I know a bunch of organ traffickers. That's and, wild. And they all say, I asked them, well, why do you traffic in organs in various ways? I asked them the question and in various ways they always answer, well, I'm saving lives. They're not saying I'm trafficking organs. They say I'm saving lives. I'm giving organs to people. And I think that's really important to realize that they see the two sides, the good and the evil at the same time. And in order to write about them, I need to acknowledge that they're right, right? They are saving lives at the same time they're taking them. And this is the problem with acting in the world is no one is truly all good or truly all evil. There's always a mix. That's the yin yang sign, right? It's like, there's always yeah. this mix, even with the worst person, there's an element that they can tell themselves that they're good. That makes sense to them. And with these sort of like overblown figures, and I think Wim Hof is now in that category, uh, um, we need to remain skeptical. We always need to remain skeptical. And people do not like skeptics. I will tell you that this is a terrible career move for me. My career <laughs> move, my career only gets better if I'm like, well, Wim is right, guys. Ice back breath work by my horse. Like that's how I get mm -hmm. famous and rich. You, I, you, you say yes and to everything. It's like the improv thing, right? Like, oh. Mm -hmm. You said something crazy. Well, you're right. And I'm crazy too. Give me money. That's how you get famous and rich in the world. But no one likes skeptics. No one likes to be told, actually, maybe there's a more complex situation and we shouldn't adore these figures. But that's but my role in life is not to get rich, right? My goal in life is to is to go out there and tell people the truth and remind people that 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 you are the center of yourself, right? You need to come back to your center and you cannot give your power out to other people, even if you happen to have written a New York Times bestseller about them and gotten really full <laughs> into the practice, you still have to find your center and and say, look, even if someone was good at some point, we're always changing and the, and the conditions are always changing. And we can still say, and I still love Wim, like Wim's an awesome guy. I think he's a really fascinating individual. Just don't follow him over a cliff. Yeah. And you know what, though, what you just mentioned about the skepticism part of what you do, that I thought about that when I was listening to the chapter I listened. I did, I, I read Love The it. Wedge, but I listened to Enlightenment Trap, and which you read. And there's a chapter called Spiritual Sickness. And I thought about exactly what you were just saying about a skeptic, because so many times the skeptic is just the naysayer. So yeah. many times they haven't actually tried it. And I thought, why am I more willing to accept what he's saying right now than if I was just randomly listening to someone? Yeah. Well, A, you had already built credibility with me because I'd read The Wedge. But B, I think it's because you had actually tried these things. You know, you right. have this experience with Wim. You're not just somebody that's like 
seen him from the outside and decided to you know, read your book and then has yeah. decided to discredit. It's not like a seeking to discredit. I guess that's what I'm saying. It doesn't right. seem like like it's more like a healthy like I tried it and here's the whole balanced picture of it. Right. Because nothing is all good and all bad. And, you know, it's it, and we, this is a real problem in our social discourse in general. Right. We we you know, I am generally a science forward person. I have some sort of like places where I go beyond science, but I try to know when I'm pushing past what is verifiable with evidence. And I think that knowing when you're going into the nuts category or like listen, the unevidenced category is important to acknowledge mm -hmm. yourself uh, and with other people and probably bias, like bias, right? right? Like when you're like, wait, I want to prove this point, you know? Right. And like, I want to prove meditation's good or meditation's bad or enlightenment is dangerous, you know, like rather than not having an agenda. What have right. you studied in your life that has surprised you uh, as far as like what well, what I was just saying, like maybe you thought it was going to turn out one way and it turned out a totally different way. Well, I mean, the obvious one is Wim Hof, right? Because oh yeah, in, you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. Right. the obvious one is I went in thinking Wim Hof was a charlatan, and it turns out it was great. Um, but like, I guess it's size relative. How'd you find out about him in the first place? There was a post on Reddit of all things um, mm -hmm. saying that you know I think it was him advertising like a heated jacket because he was a, at one point a spokesmodel for Columbia Sportswear where they had a battery powered jacket that would heat you up and he popped out of some ice and I was like oh that's an interesting guy and I learned that he was doing his very first training program in Poland and I reached out and eventually flew out there to go to his very first public training um, wow and so that was how I mean just was sort of luck and how all that happened mm -hmm. but I do want to say something about skepticism and I think you're right it's about you have to give the thing you're skeptical about a chance or else you're not a real skeptic right you're just another knee-jerk person who has a team on Twitter and that, at, where where the I, idea like one great example is uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's Yoni egg okay so I love this example because one, it's ridiculous, right? There is an egg made out of jade, and you put it in your. I, I don't put it in my vagina, but you. I have, have one. I have. Okay, I have two or three, actually. They've I been that. So, some are gifts. Yes, I love it. Okay, so you get the yoni egg, and 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 you put it in your vagina, and it does good things for your vagina, right? And and the skeptical community looks at the yoni egg, and they say. There's no science behind it. It's dangerous and it, it's not an ancient Chinese practice. Okay. And there's even like journal articles talking about how it's not an ancient Chinese practice. And I would agree, it's probably not. It's probably a jade egg that you put in your vagina. Um, and, okay. <laughs> and, and the, the skeptics on the, on the skeptic side are like, isn't that ridiculous? An egg in your, you're not a bird. That's not a cloaca. And like, they, they sort of go on this sort of rant anti, anti egg. And on the pro side, you get people who are like, it helps my pelvic floor. I have an experience with it and it's pretty decent. And and then you probably get people who are like, and I can hatch dragons out of it, right? You probably have the full, <laughs> full spectrum of insanity all right. the way over the left. Right. Right? But they're sure like a middle ground somewhere. And the true skeptic are, are those the sort of knee-jerk skeptics. I, I will approach them and I will say, look, Yoni Egg is funny. I agree. Admit, it's funny. It's a funny thing. But- how can you say that it's dangerous? Do you have any clinical evidence whatsoever 
other than theoretical clinical evidence, because they, 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 they'll say, oh, you can get a bacterial infection. That's the usual what comes back. It's like, okay, that, lots of, we're into lots of things in their vaginas that could give them bacterial infections. Like, they're tight. It's not, um, <laughs> it's more just because it's an absurd thing that they can use as an icon to be like, how bad is goop in general? And there are bad mm-hmm. things about goop. There are bad things. But I don't think the yoni egg is the one. I think it's just something that a symbol that they use. And if there is a benefit to it, it's probably not medically studied, right? There's probably, there's not like clinical trials on that. So you have to sort of throw out the evidence side of it. But harm is the other side of evidence, right? People do a lot of things that aren't studied clinically that might benefit you. And even if it doesn't do anything specifically, like it tightens these four muscles, like, and we've proven this with our peer review stuff. There is something called the placebo effect and there's something called the adherence effect. They're hugely important things in the world. It, placebo effect, we probably all know it's like the power of belief. If I believe in this, it will make me feel better. I will get healthier. The adherence effect is even more important. And this is the one that everyone forgets, the cousin of the placebo effect, which states, if you take a treatment, regardless of the quality of the treatment, and you adhere to the protocol, the more complex the protocol, the better your health. So, so, so if it's an intense thing that you're doing and you adhere to this thing, you are going to get um, clinically positive results just because of that adherence. And, and again, it's that faith that placebo related and you're going to, and you're doing, and, and if you look at any clinical trial, they measure it against placebo, right? You know, a pain medication and, 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 and obviously bullet wounds, placebo is not that super useful, but in mm-hmm. chronic pain and you know, gastrointestinitis, there's placebos, like a, a really large proportion of a drug's efficacy. And if we look at a drug, and I'm just going to make up some statistics here. Um, if we say that like Rogaine, I think this, I think I'm close to Rogaine on this, but it's been a while since I've actually read the study. Rogaine re- goes there like 45% of the time. Um, and the placebos like 35% of the time. So, damn. So what's better? Right? Is it is it the placebo, yeah. which is the majority of that amount, or is it the chemical action that we that we have on the other end? And I think that what we what both science and the the people on the other side of science need to agree is that they're both important. Like whatever the healing power of the placebo effect, the mind and 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 practice is important is real healing. And this is what the skeptics get wrong, and it's also what the sort of the wellness oddballs get wrong is that is that is as long as people are getting better and they're not causing harm then it's fine don't just make fun of goop forever right and you know <laughs> but but say like look there there could be some healing and like why don't you get a life and talk about some other things that are a little less like funny and let people let people have their eggs yeah. And there's also like an acknowledgement that our knowledge of science is not done. Like maybe we're going to discover something in 50 years that brings a scientific aspect to why that's happening. Like we don't know. Sure. Right. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I think you talked even about in Enlightenment Trap, you have uh, you talk about like our energy and how it's not proven by science and chakras and like uh, the the lung disease i guess if we want to call it yeah Yeah, which is you can explain it better than i can but anyway it's all about our energetic systems we don't know i mean you know maybe well i i think a more useful way to think about that actually 
And I so I understand what you're saying, but I actually want to reframe it a little because I've thought a little bit more complexly about it since I even read that book. Um, so, and it goes back to my anthropological training. Medical systems, Western allopathic medicine comes from a certain tradition of cause and effect, right? This thing, material object, causes that material result. And it, it and there are certain types of evidence that go in with, with disease and diagnosis, signs and symptoms uh, that make sense in a Western context. But in other, there are other medical systems out there in the world, right, that, that have fundamentally different ideas about how the world is comes together in the first place. And those doctors in a Chinese tradition or a Tibetan tradition or an Arabic tradition will say, look, you present to me with a symptom. And I will a symptom is your subjective feeling of a of a illness, and I will look for a sign, which is my objective from my doctor's idea, what I think might be going wrong with you, and then I will compare that to a diagnosis, which is the thing in the book that says all these people have had this thing, right? So you say yeah. I have a headache, and I'm like, oh, look, there's a bullet in your head, symptom sign, and then I look into my my um, medical manual about all the other people who've had the. Bulluin's not a great example, but anyway, you, you look for the thing that happened, and then and then you you go through, and then and then you you sort of engage in the dialectic between the patient and the doctor, hopefully by looking at evidence around you. Well, in Chinese medicine, they believe that there are energies in the world, and when you present with a symptom, you don't say, "I have um, a, a a clinical history of migraines," because migraines don't exist in Chinese medicine. You, you you say other symptoms and other things, and so there's different ways to even conceive of what an illness is in the first place, and and they're treating different signs, different symptoms, and the reason those medical systems survived as long as they did is because they proved to be more effective than random chance. And Western medicine gets a lot of stuff right. It does. It really does right on a lot of factors but it does really crappy on certain other things. And Chinese medicine gets a lot of things wrong, but they also get a lot of things right in a lot of factors. And I, and and just looking through different cultural contexts is very important. And so the lung, which is, a, is the idea of you have chakras throughout your body, and this is an indic system, and, and wind moves through them, through these chakras. And if your wind patterns get messed up, you got a little storm going on there, you can get all sorts of illnesses and, and lung presents in the American system schizophrenia. In the Tibetan tradition, it's wind, it's wind disease. And you can treat wind disease with lithium. Is that is that the, is, I think it's lithium. I don't know. You can do you can do a psychiatric intervention on somebody with schizophrenia, or if they have lung, you can treat them with these other uh, other other grounding methods. And sometimes both work and sometimes both fail. And I think that, that again, with humility, it's really important to go in there and say that there is not one right answer, but there are different ways to culturally interact with things and culturally um, try different methods and realize that there are dangers to everything. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. And that's super interesting. Um, is there anything that we haven't gotten to that you really want to talk about today? Oh, my God. I can just yammer on stuff all day. Like I, like, I like that. that. That's the podcast dream. That's a podcast dream. I have a radio background too, so I'm like, great. Nice. But like, what's on your what? Like, what is coming up for you right now? Like, what do you really want to talk about? Anything? What is it? Um, 
I want to talk. Um, so the, the idea that's in my head right now is totally related to what we were just talking about, which is zombies. Okay. <laughs> Great. I just read this awesome book called The Serpent and the Rainbow, which is a horror movie also. It was, it was an anthropological book. Right? Is it Mickey yeah, Rourke? It I remember it from the 80s. And it scared me. I remember it. It scared me. So it's about mm-hmm. Haitian zombies. And so we know yeah. there's three types of zombies in, in, in literature, in the world right now, right? We have the undead, okay? We have, um, there's a philosophical zombie, which we're not going to get into, but basically a philosophical zombie is that I can't tell that you're conscious. You might just be acting unconscious. Mm. Put that one to the side. And then there's the third one, which is the Haitian zombie. And so The Serpent and the Rainbow is um, a book by an anthropologist from Harvard called... Uh, Wade Davis, and and he was given an assignment from his like professors to say, look, there is there is this phenomenon of zombies in Haiti, and uh, and there there's these people who have no will, and they they take a potion. We want you to find out what the potion is that take that gives them no will because we need to be made into a great anesthetic in our in our labs, and we we'll, you know we're going to sell it to the pharma. And so Wade Davis goes to Haiti, and he tries to uncover the recipe for the zombie potion and he finds it you know long story short he figures out what the recipe is uh and it's like a mixture of like datura and blowfish and like a bunch of like you know toxic chemicals and you take it and it will give you a like a pretty intense horrible psychedelic experience but he says zombies cannot exist in the west because the only way that the zombies emerge and they're and literally when you take this potion, you're cursed. You take the potion. There's a couple of ways they can administer it. You take this potion, you're cursed, and then you die, and then they bury you, and then you you come out of the grave in a ritual. This does happen. And then you have no will, and I think they make you drink some blood or something. It's pretty nasty. And then you will work on plantations for your whole life without the ability to like think. You know, like you just take orders docilely for your whole life. And it's a thing that happens. But what what Davis points out, which is so fascinating, is it only works in the Haitian context if you believe in zombies. If you believe in zombies and you have this psychedelic, incredibly traumatic experience, right? You're on, you're on think of yourself tripping on mushrooms or ayahuasca, then buried alive and you're underground for two days and then you come up. It's a terrible experience. But then you realize you're a zombie and then you did die. What Wade Davis says, the society agrees that you're dead, even though you're physically alive. Everyone says you're dead. You say you're dead, you're dead, you're a zombie, and then you act like a zombie. Fascinating, right? It's fascinating. It's this right. It's called it's called psychobiology. It's the idea that you believe you've been cursed and then you are cursed. And so you are. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's like a testament to the our mind is all powerful. Our mind is determining like how we behave, all of it, I guess. Yeah, and Which I totally am, I'm on board with, you know? I mean, like, the power of belief is insane. Like, it's ridiculous. It's like, uh, you know, I'm constantly reading about that. Like, it's bombarding me. I went to Abraham Hicks, and that's, there it is, right? And it's like, allowing, it's like, what do we believe? That's our truth. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I, I, yeah, the question of what is truth is, like, this grinds me up at night every night, like these days. Like, what do we really know about truth? Like, what is it? Like, I believe, I have a faith that there's an objective world in this world. Like, there, there is an objective reality. There's 
atoms bumping around and there's a house that I'm in right now. It's not just a dream that I've created. Um, but I also think that that my interact I cannot truly access that objective world as it exists. I can only access it through my subjective experience of that world. Mm-hmm. And and that, yeah, it changes my biology. Because if I believe I'm going to be cursed by that zombie potion, I will be cursed by that zombie potion. And and my physiology will change by the interaction between the cultural context that I'm in, my pre-positioned beliefs about how the world works, and then how my biology reacts. This gets back to the wedge. Um, this is what the wedge is all about. It's paying attention to your sensations and realizing that every sensation is a choice and that you can change the way your body reacts to the world. Um, Some of this is changing your beliefs in the world. Some of this is saying, look, I believe this medicine will heal me. And sometimes that's enough to give the medicine a little edge in healing. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not going to like 100% do it. it, There's another 100% in everything, right? We can't say this thing will cure your cancer because then you blame the person with cancer that they died and it was their fault. But like, can it give you an edge? Can it do things? Yeah, it can. And mm-hmm. and I worry about scientific truth all the time because I look at journal articles constantly. But I also realize that the crazy people say journal articles and they say their science is right. I'm like, my science is right too. And what's going on? Like, I don't, I don't know. And then and then the whole point is like just surrender and be in the moment. I mean, like, because we're not. I don't know. I think the older I get, the more I'm just like we're not really going to figure it out. Like we're just not. And like, I think that the older I get, the more I surrender to that. I'm, I studied philosophy in college and religion. I'm interested in these bigger picture. I think that's why I started our conversation. Like what's the question, you know? And, um, cause I guess I just sort of, am like, if I'm really going to be happy, then it's okay not to have the answer and just, yeah. Just enjoy our conversation. Enjoy, you know, tossing it around. Enjoy this moment. Enjoy this book that may not, may or may not be real. I don't know, you know, like maybe it exists. Maybe I should be able to stick my hand through it if I believed that, <laughs> you know, that's it's all energy packets. Anyway, um, I'm not, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I guess just like the older I get. I think how boring the world would be if, if X religious text was right. Right. It doesn't matter which one you're talking about. We'll just say Christianity <laughs> okay. for a second. Right. Let's, just, sure. okay. let's just say you're a fundamentalist Christian and the Bible was exactly correct in every word, right? Physical reality, not even a metaphor. It's you're a fundamentalist and the fundamentalist was correct. Life would be boring. It would be like, okay, well, there's the answer. You just follow these rules and do the next thing. It's like it's like the, the beauty of life is that there's mystery and there's questioning and there's struggling and and there's beauty. You know, my wife I'm going to plug my wife's podcast and book here. Who's so, good? Okay. Yes, please. So she has a po- she has a, bo- a podcast called Wild Thing, and there's a book right here called The Search for Sasquatch. I wondered what that was. I saw Sasquatch behind you, and I was like, what is that? Ah, oh, that she wrote that? She wrote this book. And so so my wife is amazing. She's a, She was an editor at NPR for like 10 years, and she wow. learned that she was the um, cousin of the preeminent world's expert on Bigfoot. And she was, and she's like a science, like hardcore lady, right? And she's like, she's like wow, it's in my blood, in my blood. So, <laughs> so she spent like a year, and her podcast is called Wild Thing. It was like top hundred uh, on iTunes for a while, and it was she was like, I'm gonna go 
find out why this academic professor was, and he was a you know professor at George Washington University. Uh, is that right? Washington, Washington State University. Um, and where, uh, like, why would this man of science, who was a very well-respected anthropologist, why he would spend his life looking for Bigfoot? And so the podcast is like exploring that question. And she looks at Bigfoot from the perspective of what we know through science and what what's what's out there. And she finds cool evidence and and negative evidence. And and here's the thing. Bigfoot, if he exists, which he probably doesn't, but if he exists, right? And if we found him and we captured him, and put him in a cage, and we put him at the zoo, Bigfoot would be boring. He'd be a gorilla. He'd be a big gorilla. And you'd be like, oh, okay, there's a all of the mystery, all of the wonder, all of the searching, all of the questioning would be for nothing because it'd just be another animal. And the beauty of, of him, in my opinion, is that you don't know. And you're like, probably not. Like you think of all the reasons why he's almost definitely not out there. And there's a lot of really good reasons. And I generally fall on the side he's not out there. But there's just this tiny, ipsy, bitsy sliver, like this tiny, like just like you can you can thread a piece of paper through it sliver. You're like, well, maybe. And that's yeah. <laughs> a really interesting conversation. Yes, it is. And I've listened to podcasts about it. So I will definitely check hers out. I listened to a lot of uh, last podcast on the left. So we yep. talk about it extensively. So um, thank you for sharing that. And you're right. Yeah. I mean, like, and I think that I'm just cool with that. Like the older I get, like, sure, maybe there's like this unacceptance of it and this acceptance of it. And the more, I don't know, it. like, anyway, yes. Thank you for sharing that. So as we wrap up today, I want to just thank you too for your time. I've loved talking to you. Uh, It's so much fun. And I like someone who's just like willing to get curious about everything. I think that is just one of the coolest aspects of someone. So thank you. Thank you for your curiosity and and how well you're bringing it to the world and all your um, endeavors. So thank you. So as we close, is there anything that maybe you really, that's on your heart that you'd like to say in closing today or just anything that maybe we didn't get to that you want to touch on? I speak speak from my heart basically this whole time. So I don't have anything new because we're going to go to that other zombie hole and we're going to have a dinosaur. (laughs) So so let's not go there. Um, But like, I really just appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. It's always fascinating. and, you know, people want more of my like random thoughts. I have a YouTube channel that I'm having fun with and a podcast that I'm having fun with. Um, and I'm actually really enjoying creating these things because, you know, I've been doing books for like 13 years or no, 16 years. I've been doing books like these really long form, hard investigations. And there's something so freeing to take an idea and play with it for 10 or 20 minutes or, you know, sometimes up to an hour and, and put out like a reasonably well-argued thought, right? That I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I find it like just a really fun medium. So I have a, like a YouTube channel. I don't even know what it's called. It's probably called Scott Carney. <laughs> Something like that on YouTube. I'll, I'll put a link. I'll find it. Put a link. <laughs> uh, and, and this podcast, I'm just really, I just want to say that I'm having fun. Um, tackling a lot of the ideas that we've talked about here. Uh, and enjoying them and playing with them and trying to turn some ideas on their heads um and uh yeah i you know you could you can 
if you're really curious about what about the most like sort of salacious things that I worked on, I did a video about the 10 years of doing the Wim Hof method that got a whole kerfuffle started with me between me and the Hoffs, where they tried to like ban my YouTube channel, like threatened to sue and all this fun stuff. And wow. Uh, and there will be updates as well. And if they're not on YouTube, which is where I want them, they're they're mirrored in other places that they cannot be taken down off the internet. Um, so, Good, you know, yeah. Good, yeah. Keep at it. What's what is making you grow right now? Like, what are you leaning into and finding growth? Is it is it like the nap thing? Is it you know whatever you're studying right now? Is that kind of what pushes your growth? Yeah, I think that with naps, it's been really interesting to sort of study the down state because a lot of my books are on the state right it's like you know you put yourself in ice water and you're 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 on like you're 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 like confronting these really heavy things i mean i did do a chapter on flotation tanks in in um, the wedge but napping is so accessible and i think it's a really they're really awesome interventions into like our workaholic lifestyle you know that that guy who grinds his way in the office is told not to nap because we have to work we have to work no matter what and it's just so funny because evolutionarily we nap, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. most humans throughout the world nap around 3 p.m. You know, it's about eight eight to 12 hours after you wake up in the morning, you'll take a nap. I think it's eight. Uh, and because your, your melatonin switches and there's some biology to it. But it's, we have cultural assumptions that drive us forward all the time uh, that we just think this is the way you live. And then you would never not do that because people who do X, Y, Z thing are bad people. Right, whether it's napping, whether it's a sex thing, whether it's a, a risk taking thing, whether it's a whatever thing, I don't care. Like, there's a th- there are things that that we just think you should live like this or you shouldn't live like that. And napping mm-hmm. is like weirdly rebellious. It's like, you know, <laughs> I, and I, I sometimes will tell my my wife or people around, I'm like, yeah, yeah, sorry, I'm I'm working right now. Don't disturb me. Maybe napping just needs a rebrand. Maybe you're here to, you know, offer this rebrand of napping. It needs a new everything. Yeah. You know, it's funny. So many of the books that are out there about like napping, like they they acknowledge that we should nap, right? And then they give you like techniques to nap, which is funny. Although I do offer some techniques in, in my book, but like, it's like, no, dude, just fucking do it. Just put your hand out. Like there's yeah. no, you're not going to do it the right way. The, the right thing to do is to agree to yourself to do it and then you know and you we could say you know you need a 15 minute nap you need a nine minute nap you need to get these like different sleep stages yeah sure we can talk about that but the reality is you should pay attention to your senses and your senses are telling you hey i'm tired right now and maybe i should lie down and that is the hack like it's not even special like you know you need a nap but usually what people do is they push through because the culture or because the deadline or because of the kid or cuts of the blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. There's this other thing from the outside world that's telling you not to pay attention to your sensations. So so you can do that sometimes and you can get away with it for sometimes. But and at some point, your body says, uh, you build up so much with that, what sleep scientists called sleep debt. So a sleep debt, you should yeah. sleep eight hours a night. And if you sleep seven hours a night, you get one hour of sleep debt. And then, you know, you do that for a week, you have seven hours of sleep debt. And, and the only way to pay back sleep debt is by sleeping extra hour. That's the sleep science framing. Um, mm-hmm. Well, at some point, sleep debt doesn't go away. It just turns into chronic illness. Like, yeah. it's, it's like, it's like oh, okay, well, you, you've accumulated X number of hours of sleep debt. Now you've got chronic anxiety. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> right? Uh, oh, shit. I was going to say something right in the middle of that, and, and I forgot what it was, but uh, it was good. Um, but that was funny. It's, it's about it's about listening. I'm sure it was hilarious. And yeah. it made you more attractive. It just did. <laughs> right. Well, it's about listening to your body and stepping into that, you know, and and anyway, I'm like, a, I'm I'm really excited to to read that study. And like and I like the accessibility of it because so many times like people can think that they can't get the benefits of X because they don't have a ice bath at their house or whatever it is. So, you know, the, the more accessible we can believe that something is or you know, do it, then the better. So anyway. Thank you so much. I'm sure I'm going to remember whatever groundbreaking thing I was going to say after we hang up. It'll but, be in the uh, show notes later. Yeah. Look in the show notes yeah. to the brilliant insight, guys. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. I was so excited about this. Thank you for showing up today and giving your time. And I'm just thrilled to get to share your voice and your perspective because it's, you know, very pragmatic, too. And I'm a pragmatist at heart. So um, thank you so much, Scott. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and Yeah, thanks for having me. And 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 the only th- last thing that I want to leave you with is I know you yeah. said you were in Austin. Yeah. Um, you have to be in Austin for the eclipse that's coming up next year. So remember to be there because oh, it Okay. It black it'll black out Austin completely. And good Wow. It'll be When is it? For, I, I I could look I'll it up on look. my calendar, I'll have to look. but it's, I I'll think it's like next, I think it's, I want to say like June 17th next year, um, but I might okay. be off by a little bit. Oh, off by calendar. Yeah. It's, right. it's going to be awesome. And I'm looking for a place to stay down there. So let me know. Come on. Sure. Come on. <laughs> we'll have a big eclipse party. Please bring Great. your wife though. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Can you share real quick, just a quick rundown of how everyone can find you and follow you? Yeah. Um, I would suggest. Look at my um, YouTube channel because there's cool stuff there. Cool. Google me into that. Um, I have a website, scottcarney.com. SG Carney on everything. Um, okay. SG Carney on all of the websites. And I have a newsletter too, which is, a, it's probably the best newsletter on the internet. Yeah, I mean, just just <laughs> straight up, wisest, funniest, and uh, and just most informative on the whole internet. Um, my mindset. Okay. I'm gonna. I'm convinced. I believe it. So it is. So thank you. Yeah. So thank you so much. I'll have all that in the show notes. Thank you to everyone who listened today. Please follow Scott. Thank you for being here. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember to share this podcast with a friend because then we have interesting conversations and things just keep snowballing and getting more amazing in this world from there. That is where it happens when we communicate, when we use our voice. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you to our guest, Scott Carney, and uh, highly recommend all his books for sure. And I'm going to read another one now. So uh, thank you again, Scott. I, I just appreciate it. And thanks to everyone for being here. Till next time. This has been the Amy Edwards Show from Overcome Studios. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And thank you so much for being here. Sign up for our newsletter at amyedwards.com.